Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. My name is John, and with me, as always, my co-host, Jason. Jason, how are you doing today? Uh, still alive. Okay, that's good. That's good. <laughs> same same here, exactly. So, just like announced last week, today we'll be talking about Jang Yimu's 1991 movie, Raise the Red Lantern. However, before we get into that, uh, we'll do our usual seg- segment where we talk about the media that we've consumed in the last couple of weeks. So, Jason, why don't you start? What have you been watching or playing or reading uh, since last time we spoke? So, uh, due to a migraine, I haven't been able to uh, watch as much as I had wanted to. Um, but I did get around to uh, consuming some films, uh, some unlikely films as well. Um, Spider-Man No Way Home. So, I... I hadn't watched the previous film, Spider-Man Far From Home, so I was going in blind. Um, is that So is that the third with the new actor or the second? I think it's the second. Oh, I'm not sure. Is there a third one that just came out? It must be the third one then. Like, I have no idea what's going on with the Spider-Man franchise. Yeah, because I haven't than... seen any of the newer ones either, so... Yeah, like, uh, I watched the first Andrew Garfield one and I hadn't watched any of the others. So, um... Yeah, like Spider-Man No Way Home, um, like going in blind, lots of drive-by exposition to get you up to speed quickly. I liked seeing Tobey Maguire and Willem Dafoe, because that's my generation Spider-Man. Um, yeah, other, yeah, yeah. Other than that, I didn't really care for the story. You know, the actors are charismatic, but... Uh, uh, I watched the 1977 uh, zombie movie, Shockwaves, or technically a zombie movie, um, but essentially a cast of unlikable tourists gets washed up on a Caribbean island with an abandoned hotel inhabited by Peter Cushing, who plays a Nazi, a former like uh, surgeon who's created this race of super soldiers. And these super soldiers uh, put the hotel in this uh, castaways under siege, essentially. And I found it quite dull. Yeah. And it's, you said 1977, so that's the same year that Cushing was in Star Wars, right? Oh, really? I don't know the date for Star Wars. 77. Yeah. Grand Morph Tarkin, is it? Something like I, that? I don't remember what his character is, but yeah. He was brought back for the um, spin-off 2017. Uh, yeah, so, uh, Swiss, uh, no, uh, Rogue One or something. Yeah, yeah, CGI Peter Cushing, yeah. Yep. So, yeah, like, uh, you could clearly tell that he was picking up a check and having a, you know, fun vacation on a Caribbean island. Uh, and I also watched the 1973 film The Friends of Eddie Coyle. Uh, oh yeah, that's a that's a very good movie. 
yeah, Robert Mitchum, really great performance from him. Um, dialogue between the characters is really uh, rich with details. And uh, a couple of electric bank heists as well. Uh, yeah, it's one of those, I felt, uh, you just uh, it, to sort of uh, add up to your dialogue point, it's, I, I hate, there's, um, and I blame Robert Altman for this, because uh, I think he began it. There was sort of like a, a trend in the 70s where he was uh, considered artistic to have characters talk over each other. Mm. And I can't say, I can't emphasize how much I hate, I hated that. Uh, you know, you can see it in like the Jaws. You can see it in pretty much all Robert Altman movies, in you know Mash and uh, Nashville and all of them. And I, I don't like that trend. But I, the Friends of Eddie Coyle, I feel like that's that's one movie where they sort of like the dialogue can be realistic in that sense, but it doesn't. It's not as irritating as some other '70s movies. Yeah, like Robert Mitchum has some really great monologues, like "Never Ask a Man Why He's in a Rush." Yep, and uh, yeah. What else did I watch? I watched The Lost City, um, Sandra Bullock and Channing Tatum, uh, which is uh, essentially an updating of Romancing the Stone. Um, and it made me realize that Channing Tatum has a lot of charisma because he keeps many scenes afloat. And there's a great cameo by a uh, big actor. I don't want to spoil it, but it's the best thing in the film. And uh, the final film that I watched, uh, Busu, 1987 film by Jonichi Kawa. Um, Coming at page story set uh, in late 1980s Japan, uh, 1987, I guess, starring Yasuko Tomita. Um, and it's about a girl who travels from her small island of Izo to live with her aunt in Tokyo, uh, where she becomes an apprentice geisha and attends a high school. And there's a family trauma that's in the background that's only hinted at in a montage scene that's left a deep mark on the character and made her mental state ugly, which is like why the. Um, the title's Busu, which is kind of like, um, if you use that in Japanese, it's kind of insulting someone's calling them a, a pig or a dog. And for the first hour of the film, it's really dark as you watch this girl with this like horrible mental state struggle to relate to people and um, struggle to learn the art of being a geisha, which is something that her mother excelled at. As it becomes clear throughout the film, she has some... Um, trauma and by getting to know people by exploring the city of Tokyo and observing um, others she realizes other people have um, family problems as well personal problems and then the film falls into sort of a, a familiar template of like okay everybody has to work towards a school festival and she'll have to use the geisha skills and I actually found it quite moving um, because you see this portrait of a teenage girl and other teens around to trying to find themselves amid um, difficult times and the film features lots of cool city pop songs and wandering around Tokyo and I can relate to that because when I was in Japan I wandered around Tokyo a lot myself and also I finished watching the Netflix adaptation of Cowboy Bebop all right what did you think uh it's not awful it's just not great I think in terms of adaptations I've mentioned this before um but I'm definitely in the camp of do something different from the source um because the chances are like the work, the adaptation will never live up to the source, especially in the minds of the um, fans. And I feel like uh, Netflix Bebop um, wasn't, I didn't know which audience to hit, whether it wanted to go for original fans because it directly adapts um, episodes from the anime, or whether it wanted to do something different so it fell in the middle and it kind of failed. Um, like, three dud episodes, Ballad of Fallen Angels, 
Brain Scratch and Piero LeFou adaptations, like the changes to the stories and the characters, uh, and just the fact that you're trying to do it in live action as opposed to animation meant that the the episodes um, just did not work at all. And another thing that irritated me is that the show consistently did a poor job of situating the viewers on different planets or moons in the solar system, so it's never quite clear where the characters are, um, which planet they're on, the distances involved in traveling. So while you do get sort of the cultural backdrops and some of the technical details for the locations, like um, like Venus has the Arabic culture um, and geography and uh, like the flying islands that help terraform it, um, there's not enough like in the anime which would spend the opening of each episode sort of setting the scene. Yeah, but to be to be honest, the that I mean, I don't think the anime spent that much time establishing sort of like the solar system as as sort of like in a science fictional sense. I think for the most part, the planets and the settings were placeholders for settings on Earth. Uh, there there are a few times where the science fictional aspects enter into play, like the accident, for instance, uh, the big accident that is part of sort of like the the mythology of the of the series but otherwise i don't i think i think that's the anime too is kind of a uh is generally kind of has uh, uses the setting as placeholders for real places on earth i see i felt like there was enough emphasis on different settings on space travel itself that you kind of felt like yeah i've got a real sense of, of what's happening across the solar system and uh just to go back to a point you mentioned like the gateway accidents that's like barely mentioned in a live action series so you have no idea why earth uninhabited um they go back to earth briefly but apart from that you you know you would be forgiven for thinking that each episode of netflix bebop took place on earth yeah i mean that's true and also it's not how many episodes it's like 10 episodes right yeah something like that it's, so the, and the what, anime is 25 24 25 um but each episode is 25 minutes long that's right. So it's in time. They're about the same. It's not like the Netflix had have the, has the excuse. They don't like that. That's the thing. They don't have the excuse of the budget because obviously, I, you know, it's not the highest budget thing that Netflix has is invested in. But it's also it wasn't a low budget affair, and it's also it, it doesn't have the excuse of time. He can't say that they didn't they they had to cut down stuff or not cover stuff as much in detail because they, in in terms of minutes, they had about the same amount of of time yeah i like some of the changes actually i felt like they did work such as vicious's backstory and like the power dynamic between him and his father it's just that the changes to vicious's character the way that the actor plays him um as a pantomime villain totally undercut sort of the drama that you could get from it um i did think that some of the additions like um chalmers and kimmy uh into jet's backstory kimmy's his daughter um and chalmers is like a, a cop uh uh, on one of the moons of Jupiter. I thought those worked. And I really liked the chemistry between the central trio. I felt like uh, they organically formed into a family unit. Um, so it was kind of like those elements worked. Um, when it tries to directly adapt the anime, it didn't work. So if they tried something totally different. And then there was the final appearance of Ed, uh, like in the final moments of the show. And I thought it was terrible. You can't, like, uh, yeah, you can't have an animated character like ed in a live action world i'm sorry it's just no actor could pull it off yeah yeah and uh yeah apart from that yeah it's it's, it's okay it's not brilliant um but it's not 
I don't think it deserved the criticism that it came in for from like um, various quarters of the internet, like hardcore fans. Yeah, well, have you seen? Have you seen the? Uh, well, you might watch now, but uh, since you have Netflix now, but you, the adaptation of Death Note by Netflix. Uh, no, but I'm aware it's um, directed by Adam Wingard, who did um, the yeah. guest and your next. Yeah, so that one. I mean, the the uh, uh, criticism of Cowboy Bebo came nowhere near to the criticism of the Death Note. <laughs> Uh, that, and that's just only a movie, but that's a. I think that's one example where they did take significant liberties to mm. to with respect to the source material, and that still didn't work out. Actually, ended up a lot worse than if they had just did the same thing that Cowboy Bebop did. Uh, so that just goes to show you that changing is not enough. You actually have to have still good ideas. Yeah. Um, well, they've got the uh, Netflix adaptation of uh, One Piece coming out soon. So, oh, really? like, how are they going to do characters with like stretchy arms and uh, fire abilities? <laughs> I don't know. Or, or a thousand episodes? Isn't that still like going on forever? Yeah, I think the manga might be coming up to its final arc. But um, yeah, the anime is just going on and on and on. Uh, loads of movie adaptations as well. Yeah. It's hard. I I can't imagine like uh like if you if someone wants to get into One Piece now, it's like they <laughs> they have to devote the rest of their lives to it. It's just so much. Yeah, essentially. Um. Uh. If you want any advice about One Piece, Philip Arc is probably the best arc. <laughs> I don't know about what you think. <laughs> oh, I haven't seen it. Okay. Okay. Now, now, For... I don't think I've seen a single episode. I just I'm familiar with it, but I don't think I've ever seen it. Fair enough. Uh, Thriller Bark is, uh, if you're a horror movie fan, Thriller Bark is going to be uh, what you want to watch. Uh, and essentially, that's been my uh, media consumption. Okay. Uh, so going into my thing, I, it's fitting that you ended with Cowboy Bebo because I also restarted watching it. I didn't finish it. I watched, I think, two more episodes. Uh, and what did you think? I, I so I have to say I watched I I enjoyed it a little bit more than the the first ones that I watched like you know almost about a month ago maybe now two months even. Uh, it I think I think it so you kind of sort of get used to it once you're sort of like know what to expect once you if you go in blank or if you go in with high expectations I think you're going to be disappointed but if you know exactly what you're going in for I think it becomes more enjoyable. I uh. So to me, the uh, one thing that came a bit awkward was when uh, the dialogue was sort of too close to that of the anime, and it was when it read by live-action actors. Uh, it just kind of seems awkward, like in the episode with the eco-terrorist. Hmm. Like, just none of that dialogue like rang true to me. Like, it rang like like someone had put the Japanese dialogue through Google Translate almost. It just it just felt very 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 strange and and I think the same comments that you had about Ed that is just very uh very difficult to be pulled off by a live action actor. I actually had the same thing the same problem with Faye Valentine in more, I didn't notice it in the first few episodes because she doesn't appear a lot. But for example, in the eco terrorist episode that she appears a lot, uh, she's a big part of that. And uh, and I don't know it just. Again, the actor is not only on her dialogue, but her her mannerisms, her sort of overall uh, uh, persona is just too close to that of the anime. And I think she should have changed it. She should have 
should have kind of made it her own, and I don't think she does. I mean, she's a fine actress. Otherwise, she 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 has a couple moments where she shines, but overall, it's just it's one of the things that they should have changed, in my opinion. Uh, and I think I'll continue. I, I you know, I, I I I'm not gonna you know I'm gonna watch one episode per every three days. I think that's that's a nice pace for me, and that's that's probably more than enough of Cowboy Bebop uh, to take in uh in in that amount of time. Mm. Uh, what else? I have uh, I read the uh, an old science fiction book called The Incredible Shrinking Man. Uh, uh, gonna, oh, great! And yeah, I've watched the film. This black and Richard, white film is by it? Richard Matheson. Yes, and there's a film that came very few, very, uh, just a few years after the book. And there's also an '80s movie called The Incredible Shrinking Woman. Okay, uh, which is I think uh, sort of a, a spoof. Probably I haven't seen that one. I'm, I'm I think it's somewhat. Uh, uh, risque in terms of uh, subject matter, uh, but mm. uh, so I'm going to watch those next. I watched a Chinese science fiction movie for V Cinema called Guidance, and How was it's it? it's a indie science fiction film directed by I think an Iranian director who lives in China, uh, using relatively unknown actors. Although not completely unknown, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was pretty good. It was. Um, about it is i mean it you can sort of it's a low budget science fiction movie that is trying to sort of like uh hide the fact that it's low budget and it's almost like you you, you would hardly know that it's science fiction for most scenes uh it's uh it's only in certain scenes that the science fiction aspect sort of uh enter into the play and it is set after this third world war uh, but you wouldn't know it for most of the film. They talk about it constantly, but it's everything else looks fine, of course. Uh, but it's uh, there's uh, this one scientist's obsession with never letting something like a war come in, and he sort of invents a device, sort of an app that you install directly in your brain that tells people every time, that notifies people of your emotions and tells people, immediately notifies them every time you lie about something. <laughs> Okay. Which is exactly so. Which is an extremely, extremely. I mean, uh, the the then that is the the story. The, there's a, rom- a young couple that it tries out that device, and they have to sort of like their relationship has to be tested with all the secrets that are revealed about each other. So it isn't really much of a like on the surface or romantic movie about about sort of like you know how much honesty is is healthy in a relationship and all that that's i mean that's what the movie's about but nevertheless it is an extremely suspicious when as soon as you you tell someone that that is a chinese movie hmm. uh there's nothing mentioned about you know like anything about uh, you know the possibility of such a device being used for evil purposes thought police exactly but again coming from china there is you you cannot possibly ignore that interpretation, whether or not that interpretation was intended or not. And of course, the fact that the director is not Chinese or of Chinese descent, even though he is, I think, a, a resident of China for a few years now, is, again, uh, very, very suspicious, very thought-provoking. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure how my review is going to look like because I have to decide or not, if not, of whether that was intentional. Uh, even to a very tiny degree. Mm. There's an episode of the anime, uh, TV anime, Kino's Journey, where um, Kino is this traveler, and um, the character goes to a land where the people thought it would be a good idea to um, uh, be able to read each other's minds. I can't remember if there was like a device that allowed them to do this, but essentially 
they go ahead with this plan of reading each other's minds and they all eventually just retreat into living into their homes and <laughs> never talking to each other because it was such a horrific experience. Yeah, and and in the in the movie, spoiler alert, I I won't, I won't spoil it, but it they sort of conclude that this device is bad. Yeah, that's essentially <laughs> that's essentially the conclusion that something like this is bad. Although they don't, mm, I I think they do sort of leave out the possibility that I guess in some theoretical possible there is a theoretical possibility that that such a device could be used for good. Hmm. But uh, so I don't know. I don't know. Again, it's it's a, it's it's an interesting movie. It kind of made me think a lot. Even though the movie itself has flaws, it's the ideas that it tries to explore are interesting, especially in the context of China. Yeah, and in terms of a film podcast, it will keep us honest. Um, I will not claim to watch a film I have not watched. Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay, and, and sort of, I've also sort of kind of went. I had a, a moment where last weekend, where I kind of went through my Steam library. In all the games that I've kind of impulse bought and never tried it, so I I played two games. First, I played a, the the remake of the Crash Bandicoot of the first three Crash Bandicoot games, uh, and I've played those before. I've never played the remake, so it was it was a nice try. And I've always had fun playing those games. I've played them many times before, and they're always kind of an a nice uh, fun a challenge to to finish them and try to collect as many gems as possible. Yeah. And I also, after I finished that, I played a game called Child of Light. Uh, the Ubisoft. Yes, and oh my god, was it was an amazing. I haven't finished it. I'm still playing. It's a sort of a, a 2D RPG game uh, yeah. with some elements of platforming, but it is mostly an RPG game. And oh my god, it is. It was like the the the. First, I fell in love with the game the first five minutes of it. It, it is so great. It is such a. I think that's a lot of the the problem with modern gaming that has kind of made me not not stick with games a lot of games that i end up starting and not finishing is that so many games lack personality uh and they they also all so many games just look the same it's it's you know they and of course it's 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 no surprise they pretty much every studio now uses the same one or two game engines and the same process development so most games look the same but it's so refreshing to see a game that has like such a vision that that takes such a stance and it's not and it's not some kind of indie developer that had to stand out by making uh, by making like something small and unique this was made by a big studio ubisoft hmm. and it's you know it looks unique it has a very sort of a 16th century fairy tale quality about it about the story it's about this sort of little girl that the little princess that dies mysteriously and and wakes up in a sort of fantasy land and has to find her way back by collecting the moon the stars and the sun uh so very like your grim brothers or maybe like middle english fairy tale in it and the entire dialogue is in uh sonnets mm. not quite i don't think it's iambic pentameter like the the kind of poetry that shakespeare wrote but it's i think very reminiscent of that okay it sounds uh, uh very unique it is absolutely and i i rec- encourage everyone to play it. it it's uh it's a great game and it's a, it's a fun game it's not i mean it's not only it's a very fun rpg it's sort of it's a it's a turn-based i mean the gameplay is a basically a turn-based rpg you run around you encounter mo- monsters and if you touch them you enter into this turn-based uh, RPG phase that you kind of not not too different from Final Fantasy, and you can upgrade your weapon, your your gear with uh, actually like it. Like if you ever played Final Fantasy VII with the uh, gems that you collect, the more what are the things called? 
Materia? The Materia. It's actually a, almost an identical system. You have these little gems that you add to your weapons, and they, they gain different powers and different abilities, mm. depending on the, the gems that you sort of attach to your weapons. Mm. And you have party members that you can switch back and forth. Uh, and it's, so it's a very, very traditional turn-based RPG, but it's, you know, it's effective and fun. And just the story, the art style, the music has this very melodic uh, piano tune throughout the entire game, and it's fantastic. Okay, so it's a recommended game from John? Absolutely. And I think that's it. That's it. I've been having fun playing uh, that game, so I think that's it for my media consumption. Okay. All right. So after that, we can uh, jump into our news segment. Uh, and there's a, a couple of interesting news items this week. Uh, first, uh, the uh, I just saw this on uh, came out on my Twitter feed. Uh, I think you mentioned it before that the company 88 Films, is that the right name? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, are released the first two police police uh, story movies, and now they're releasing the third police story. I think a release date is scheduled in September. Right. This is news to me. Uh, you sent it to me uh, off air a couple of days ago. Yes, yes. So, uh, yeah, so it just came up on my Twitter feed. And then the second news item is that Takashi Ishii has passed away. I don't know if you... I'm not as familiar with him, so maybe you want to talk about who he was. So, uh, Japanese director Takashi Ishii, um, director, manga artist, and he's best known for like genre works like um, the Gonin and Black Angel franchises, both of which were released in the UK on DVD through Tokyo Bullet, so they're like hard-boiled crime films. He also did pink films as well. And uh, he passed away last month, and it was um, sort of announced publicly um, yesterday or the day before, um, so like um, in June. Was he also I, an actor? Uh, I'm not sure if he was also an actor. Okay, but maybe maybe I'm thinking of someone else. Yeah, his films like came into prominence in the '90s. Um, like um, Takashi Kitano appears in Gonin um, fairly briefly, and uh, he has like this uh, memorable scene. But uh, essentially, put ensured that he was put, even though he's not a major part of the film, he's put on the front covers, and like everybody associates him with the film. Yeah, I mean that's a common thing where you have a like Jackie Chan in the the some of the Lucky Star movies and some other movies where he has a very brief cameo, but he he's kind of you know first billing on the uh, on advertisement uh, yeah. just to, to attract the audiences. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So so that's uh, tragic news that Takashi Ishii's passed away. Okay. All right, so a, a, a brief uh, news day. No, I don't think we have any new festivals or any new events to announce that came to, my, to our attention. So that, uh, with that in mind, we can jump in straight into our film discussion. And like I mentioned in the introduction, in the introduction today's film is Raise the Red Lantern by uh, Zhang Yimou. So as usual, Jason, why don't you give us a brief summary of the film and also a brief summary of the accolades that it uh, that it get that it got over the years? So, uh, "Raise the Red Lantern" is an adaptation of the 1987 story "Wives and Concubines" by Su Tong. The story follows uh, 19-year-old Song Lian, who's played by Gong Li. Uh, she's a young woman who is forced to quit university after only six months of studies when her father dies and her stepmother insists that she marry. Song Liang concedes to becoming a rich man's concubine and becomes the fourth, fourth wife of Master Chen, 
Uh, living in his family compound, she falls into competition for the master's favours uh, with his three other wives, particularly the third mistress, Mei Shan. Song Lian learns the rules of living in this compound, um, and uh, as viewers will uh, find, it's based on ancient uh, customs uh, drawn from Confucianism. But this modern girl will soon buckle under the lack of freedom that she experiences. So this film won a number of awards and is also nominated for a number of prestigious awards as well. So in terms of the 1992 Academy Awards, it was nominated Best Foreign Language Film, but it lost to an Italian film called Mediterraneo. Which I have not seen. I've heard of it, but I have not seen. Yeah, it's a bunch of Italian soldiers are left stranded on a Greek island and one of them falls in love with a local girl. Um, must be good if it beat Race Red Lantern. Um, <laughs> uh, well, uh, I, we, we don't know about that. but Yeah, the INDB ratings, like 7.3 or something like that. Uh, the 1993 BAFTA Awards, it won Best Film Not in the English Language. At the 1993 Academy Awards of the Beijing Film Academy, it won Best Actor-Actress for Hui Feng Kao, who plays the second wife in the film. At the 1992 National Board of Review in America, it won Top Foreign Film. At the 1993 National Society of Film Critics in America, it won Best Cinematography for Fei Zhao and Best Foreign Language Film. And Gong Li was nominated for Best Actress, but she lost. Uh, at the 1992 New York Film Critics Circle Awards, it won Best Foreign Language Film. And at the 1991 Venice Film Festival, it won the Elvira Notari Prize, the Fipreski Prize, uh, and the Silver Lion. It was tied with the Fisher King and I Can No Longer Hear the Guitar. And it was also nominated for Best Lion, uh, Golden Lion, um, which is the best film. Yes. Uh, and it's uh, it's a certainly, I mean, it's a prestigious award, I, a prestigious, like a very well-known film. Uh, Zhang Yimou came to Providence, uh, to prominence with um, Red Sorghum, his directorial debut, because that won the Silver Bear. But I would argue that he did not, that was sort of the film that introduced him to cinephiles, but I don't think he became as internationally known as he did with Raise the Red Lantern. I think the Academy Award nomination especially sort of brought him to the attention of, of like the international community. Uh, Red, I mean, Red Sorghum is also a great film. It's, it's based on a novel by a Nobel winning author. Some, I think the author won the Nobel in uh, 2016 or 2017. Yeah. Um, apparently, um, uh, Judo, which is the film prior, uh, uh, Yang Jimo made prior to Race Red Lantern. Um, that was the first ever, uh, Chinese film to be nominated uh, for an Oscar for Best Foreign Language Film, right? Oh, that was nominated. I forgot that was nominated as well. Yeah, I, that that also stars uh, Gong Li, I think. Yeah, like um, Zhang Yimou's early films, Red Sorghum, um, Judo, Race Red Lantern, um, To Live as well. Yeah, but I, I, I still would argue Judo did not receive near the attention. Of course, I don't know. I wasn't there, but I don't think Judo received near the attention that Raise the Red Lantern did. No, I, uh, I, yeah, I like Raise the Red Lantern. Like I've never watched a, a Yang Jimo film uh, prior to recording this episode, but I was aware of Raise the Red Lantern, so I feel like it must have had sort of much more um, attention from uh, world cinephiles. Yeah. 
And of course, I think he got more attention later on. We talk, so anyway, we'll, we'll talk about all that. I don't want to jump the gun. So you mentioned this was a first time watch for you. So what did you, so what was your, I guess the question that I'll ask is what was your perception before you watched it? And what did you think after you watched it? Um, I like art film, I guess. Um, like I was aware that uh, Yang Zemo's like career could be split into like art film and big budget movies. Like last Last episode we talked about um, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, and um, that film helped spark popularity of Wuja in the West. And um, two huge movies that followed were Hero and um, House of Flying Daggers. And Bo- both by Zhang Yimou. Last time I think I said that uh, uh, the House of Flying Daggers was too hard, but no, it was I was I was misremembered. So that's also Zhang Yimou. Yeah. So the, those are like the, that's his big budget phase. That was like uh. Before prior to that, you've got his like art house space. I, that's what I perceived Ray's Red Lantern to be. And I think um, his big budget phase is still going on. Yeah, like um, Cliff Walkers, um, like a World War Two action film, Flowers uh, of War with Christian Bale. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like working with Hollywood stars. Um, oh, isn't so, that the 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 one with Matt Damon? Was that? Oh, you talking about the Great Wall? Is that that's by him as well, right? I, I'm not sure. Uh, yep, that was by him. And I think that's the move. Okay, yeah, I, I remember it because I think when it came out in 2016, I watched it because I had seen Flowers of War. That was, to me, disappointed, but apparently a lot of people like that. But when I saw The Great Wall, the trailer for it, I said, oh my God, what happened to this director? <laughs> yeah, it's like, um, how can an art house director create something like a spectacle like that. <laughs> it's it, we'll, we'll we'll talk a lot about you know I think how his uh, his ideas maybe his sort of like you know themes have changed uh, and uh, uh, or maybe they haven't. We'll see. But uh, but anyway, please continue your uh, your uh, discussion of your impressions of the film. So yeah, um, while I was watching it, you know, it's kind of like okay, this is clearly about subjection of women to patriarchal controls, um, like Confucianism, a feudal system, whatever. Uh, that's. Uh, but the thing that um, really sold it was like the visual aspect to it. Um, it's really visually engaging, both in like the splendor of some of the scenes, but also like the constant sense of claustrophobia because of his framing and like the location that he uses, um, the compounds that Song Yan ends up stuck in. And uh, that helped bring out themes of the subjection of women and um, the feudal system at the time. And so um, I totally respected the film and it was kind of interesting getting an insight into how um, Chinese women were uh, mistreated um, uh, within that environment. And um, I didn't love the film, but I respected it. Yeah. So for me, I had, I was I had seen it before. I had I think the first Zhang Yimou film that I had seen was Hero, uh, and I, I, ironically, at the time I really enjoyed that film. Although Hero, we didn't we mentioned Hero last time as a, a Husha film, uh, but Hero has I don't have you seen Hero? Uh, no, I haven't seen Hero. Oh, I think you mentioned it last time. Yeah, uh, you should watch Hero and and pay very pay attention to some of its messages because Hero is a very uh, disturbingly pro-authoritarianism, or at least could be interpreted that way. And and I I I kind of uh, it's kind of soured me towards the film later on once I really pay, paid attention to it because I think the first time I watched it was mostly 
uh, as sort of as a interesting and and good, very good looking also uh, hmm. wuxia film in uh, of uh, the early two thousands. Uh, but then I think after Hero, Raise the Red Lantern was the second Zhang Yimou film. And then I think I watched Red Sorghum uh, after that. But, uh, and I, I, I would agree with you. I, at the first time, uh, the first time that I watched it, the, the, the first thing that kind of caught my attention was how beautiful the film looked. Uh, mm. It is truly a, a beautiful looking film. And I don't know that, uh, you know, Hero, I think Hero is a high budget, uh, also beautiful looking in my opinion. but. Somehow, Zhang Yimou later in his career lost that, uh, lost that ability to sort of make very good-looking films in the same sense that Ray's uh, The Red Lantern. Um, and I, I agree with you uh, that this is also about this is sort of a depiction about uh, the subjugation of women in sort of feudal China, which is not. I mean, it's not the the. The film is set not too long before the Second World War, so I think it's meant to be like early 20th century or something yes. like that. 1920s? Yeah, something like that. I don't remember. During the warlord period. Exactly, exactly. But I think the film is maybe about uh, more stuff. I, I, I would argue the film, uh, the sort of the, the feminist aspects of the film are maybe more surface level than what i think the film is really about although maybe i don't know but we can we can talk about that but it's sort of on 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 the technical level i i mean it's it's a beautifully acted gong lee is just fantastic i know you said uh i think in your list of awards you said that she was nominated but did not win some of the acting awards is that correct yeah uh, particularly like beijing film academy which i uh yang uh, jang you graduated from didn't he yeah, exactly. Which is a shame because this is such a her performance is absolutely breathtaking. Uh, the cinematography is great. The music is, you know, very sort of. He uses the the what's the string organ or something that is used. Oh, I'm not sure. Anyway, and it says it with some vocals as well. I mean, it's like a great soundtrack as well, and also some of the directorial techniques that he used, like for example, never showing the face of the of the patriarch. Master Chen. Master Chen. He barely, I mean, there are some cases where you can sort of see his face, but but most of the time, the sort of the camera goes out of its way to hide the face of Master Chen. Whereas Gong Li's face is, we get so many close-ups of her and, and the other women as well. Yeah, it's kind of like she's the, well, she is, of course, the central protagonist, but even though she's subjugated, like giving her that attention um, gives her um, some agency. Gives him more agency than master of the house. Yeah, uh, but so did you get the sense that like her stepmother? Because you mentioned in your in your summary that your st- stepmother made her do it, and we get the sense that sort of she had to she had to abandon the studies. But I never, I never necessarily got the sense that her stepmother like forced her because we never get. We never get the sense that, like, she sends money back home or anything like that. Yeah, it's when the film opens, we're looking at Gong Li's face. The stepmother is never shown, it's just her voice. Um, she's off screen and um, she's insisting that Song Yan has to leave university and that her options are essentially get married. And, like, for, like at the very start, Gong Li's looking at the screen sort of almost defiantly or and um, she's like, fine, I'll get married. And 
I'll leave, I'll leave university, I'll get married, and I'll become a concubine. And it's kind of like, as a viewer, I was like, you're immediately giving up your freedom. You don't know what you're getting into. So it felt like she was cutting her nose off to spite her face. Um, but it's also like, as a result of like her position in society as a woman, as someone who's been sort of, um, divorced from, uh, like her father's, her father's, um, legacy, I suppose, because the stepmothers, um, entered the scene. Um, it, in real life, maybe she could have said, no, I'm not going to get married. I'm just going to take what little I have and travel somewhere else. Um, but for the purpose of the film, she chooses to become a concubine. Yeah, but we also get the sense that they like they they she has nothing to to take and travel. Like what little she has is nothing. It's it's a suitcase with, with a clothes with a, with a with a flute from her father, which is her father's only possession. Yeah, some clothes like her university clothes. And I think it's interesting. Two things that are interesting that it's interesting in that opening scene that you mentioned that her we never see her mother's face is just. I think we hear for her a stepmother's. I think we hear her voice if I remember correctly. Yeah, she's having a conversation, but we never see her face. Kind of not too different from how we never we always hear the master clearly speak and have conversations, but we never, uh, we never hear like see his face. He's never clearly shown and i think it's there's an interesting parallel how her stepmother is also never shown it's sort of like the two figures of authority that have some control over their lives are sort of sort of kept in the shadows mm. is it is it sort of like um it doesn't necessarily matter who the person is it's just society itself uh, in our notes i have uh the one of the points is communism versus capitalism and that's sort of my grand conspiracy theory about this film is that it's not really about uh, women's oppression. It's really about capitalism versus communism. Okay. Because, uh, I know I, that's why I, I called it a conspiracy theory. Because, first of all, again, kind of like what I mentioned with the other film that I was talking about in the media consumption section, is whenever certain topics come up with, with a context, and that context being China, you kind of make connections inadvertently. And whenever... The the color red is which is so prominent in the in in the film mm. in a Chinese film. I I don't know I don't know about you, but I personally can't help think about communism. And of course, that could be very coincidental because you know you can't just uh, like reduce a color down to just one symbol. But I I honestly do think that this film is is about sort of like the the power struggles that the like the lower classes faced before before sort of like the rise of the communist party in China, uh, the way that Zhang Yimou depicts it, uh, because like there's so many like things in the film that kind of point to that direction. If you if you treat it as an allegory and no allegory is perfect, but I, I if you do try to sort of treat it as approximately as you can with the master Chen and maybe her stepmother representing the the bourgeois, the bourgeoisie, the the the, the landowner class and with her representing the the like the proletariat pretty much everything that depict is shown in the in the film could be straight out of Karl Marx's Das Kapital like the sort of like the the oppression of the proletariat the exploitation of their work which is in cases sex and 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 children the the sort of like the fake uh, the the sort of induced conflicts between the the lower classes in order to keep the the ruling class in power so everything could be there has a parallel with sort of like the very traditional, very very traditional communist texts that I think are just kind of show show up 
in the in the film. And it's not just like the the action; it's also the imagery itself. So the red, the color red, which is a sort of very symbolic in the film about sort of like selectively giving an individual people power as and preventing them from obtaining that power themselves, which is what the red symbolizes um, in the film. The red lantern symbolizes, and also how Gong Li enters. Uh, enters like uh, she's dressed how she's dressed and how her hair is in the beginning in the beginning when she finally en- like arrives at Master Chen's house I mean she she looks almost straight out of a communist po- China poster I mean she has that white white shirt and black pants or black dress I forget exactly and the pigtails I mean she hmm. looks if, if you google communist China poster you'll see her <laughs> depicted like she literally looks just like that so, like, I think there's something there. Maybe it was not as intentional as I'm making out of B, but I, I do think there's something there. Yeah, I'm just going to Google that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, um, throughout the film, she's um, trying to disrupt the system, and um, it's, it's like that sort of symbolic of, like, the communist youth league, perhaps? Yeah, well, again, like I said, no allegory is perfect, and I don't think the film is just about that. But I, I, do, I do think, to a certain extent, He's saying this is what was happening before communism. This is sort of like an this is a this is a consequence of explo- the exploitation of the lower classes that have to that have to the sort of like the the consequence of the inequality, and that's what sort of like we have to get rid of by being in control of our red lanterns, as opposed to allowing someone else to distribute yeah. the red lantern. Because it's kind of it's kind of almost extreme how much people crave the red lantern. And of course, it's not, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, I mean, it's, it's very symbolic. Like there's nothing about the, the red lantern that's desirable. Well, that comes from being trapped in a claustrophobic environment where the only purpose of the women is to provide pleasure for the man. And so they fall into competition for what little scraps he will give them. They fall into competition to get that red lantern lit and to be able to dictate, um, you know, what they get to eat the next day and um, to bully the servants and so forth. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's it's kind of, I don't think, to, to, it, one thing that I kind of noticed in this watch, I don't think any of the characters are particularly likable. No, none of the characters are likable. Exactly. <laughs> so even, even Gong Li, who maybe is the, obviously, not maybe, but obviously the protagonist, she kind of immediately kind of takes on airs as soon as she kind of has her first food massage. Well, there's the encounter of Yanner, who's um, her servant, essentially. And as, as soon as um, she detects hostility from Yanner, she immediately becomes a bully. She exercises what little power she has by bullying the servants. And that um, ramps up throughout the film until it gets to some really callous, inhuman acts. Um, but, uh, like... The whole thing about the Communist Party, like this is set in 1920s China. It's a time when, uh, like Confucianism is still a big thing. And it's a highly sort of stratified society with men on top. And, um, uh, yet you just, uh, sent the image to me and, uh, she's almost a spitting image for that piece of uh, propaganda. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, like it's really detailed study of how this sort of system, this sort of Confucianism um, where like women are basically either peasants or, or concubines or wives and their whole uh, purpose is to give birth to a child 
the two are not separate. So what you're talking about and what I'm talking about, I mean, because obviously it's like one thing that the communists try to do is with try to do away with is traditional Confucian values in yeah. favor of sort of like communist of communist ideals by sort of like sort of a Karl Marxist ideas and then later obviously modified by Mao Zedong to fit his own his sort of his own obviously ambitions for power again i'm not saying this movie must necessarily be an allegory but if you read it that way that's how i would read it i have read sort of opposite interpretations and this has been given as an explanation for why the movie was banned in china for a period of time which i found i found strange because if it is if indeed i am right and it is indeed sort of like uh, uh, the film is meant to be, or at least partially meant to be, an allegory, a critique of capitalist ideals. It would be strange that some, this would be banned by China. But I have read interpretations that uh, some people have taken it to be as an allegory for Mao Zedong's dictatorship. Well, well uh, like, like, Master Chen is meant to be, so just to finish that, Master Chen is meant to be like the dictator and the sort of like the struggles, like the, the restrictions that he imposes and the punishments are analogous to Mao Zedong's punishments and sort of especially what he did during the Cultural Revolution. I'm not sure I buy that interpretation, but I, I guess it is a possible one. Well, spoiler alert, if you haven't watched the film, maybe come back to this podcast um, after watching it. But the one character that um, does suffer a horrible fate is uh, an artist. And we know that Mao... Uh, targeted the intelligentsia, the uh, or academia and artists um, during his reign. Yeah, and I mean, it definitely is definitely sort of anti. I mean, there's definitely even if whether you take it, you take Master Chen to be a dictator, a communist dictator, or sort of a capitalist oppressor. It certainly has a very anti-authoritarian uh, bent, which is also a possible reason why it was banned in China. And it's also very interesting given how pro-authoritarian hero is. I, I I think it doesn't matter. You could have capitalism, you could have communism, you could have feudalism. Um, essentially, like Confucianism, is at fault, and um, it's hard to get rid of it. Like even today, it's still a, a major part of people's lives. It's how family and country is structured. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, in the nineties, when I mean, the, he wouldn't. I don't think he would have made the film if it still wasn't a major part of Chinese. Uh, Chinese society. And I think that was kind of like part of the cultural revolution was to kind of completely eradicate uh, sort of like any roots of traditional uh, Chinese sort of like anti that was deemed sort of anti-revolutionary. Yeah, because like Confucianism can help with the, well, it exploits people. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of it's kind of amazing how many bad calls Mao Zedong did in his life. Like the cultural revolution is kind of considered like a, a massive failure. Except, well, a massive failure historically. Of course, he was successful in getting rid of his enemies. I think, yeah, similar things happened to um, communist regimes around the world. Like um, when Stalin tried to modernize Russia, um, millions of people starved to death. Absolutely, absolutely. That's that, exact. That's kind of my point. Is that I think that the film is primarily about sort of like the oppression of women in a in sort of like a male-dominated society. And I would argue that China never stopped being a male-dominated society. And most most communist countries, whether it is Russia or whether it is Eastern, many places in Eastern Europe, despite sort of like the, the communist ideals being about true equality, like you said, the Confucianist principles in the case of China or patriarchal principles in the case of any other country never truly went away. 
yeah, it's men and women were supposed to hold up the sky together, but yeah, men still dominate. You know, like it in little things like um, parents would favor having boy children because if you have a daughter, you have to marry her off and give a dowry to the family and so forth. Um, but yeah, this applies equally to all cultures as well. It's just like um, patriarchy is just um, terrible wherever you go. Yeah, one I guess. One kind of hole in my theory is that uh, this being as also a pro-communist sort of film is that sort of generally in communist propaganda you you want you want to have uh, and I've seen communist propaganda films is you want the lower classes to come off to kind of uh, look likable in the end you want hmm. the higher classes need to look you know evil and unlikable whereas the lower classes the proletariat needs to end up likable and that doesn't happen in this film everybody's just simply uh i want to say not the quite detestable but um selfish to a certain extent well it's like parasite they're stuck in a system that makes them desperate they do terrible things to each other and um like in parasite poor people were targeting poor people until the finale and um here it's women um attacking women and like there's the Yan Er character, the the maid, like she's of the servant class, and like there'll come a point where she either has to be married off to someone, or or you know she she has her sights set on becoming a a wife or a concubine herself, and it's kind of like she's stuck in that environment where she understands that like in order to get material goods, in order to get any form of power, she has to subject herself to that exploitation, and she's willing to be horrible to Song Yan, and Song Yan reacts to that. And becomes horrible to her yeah and uh i mean like again i, I think uh, more uh, more points to support my theory because i do think that the case the film makes the case for the illusion of mobility which is yeah. another sort of ideal because you know yanner is uh has illusions of being uh, becoming concubine and it's not like she's sexually not involved with the master i mean we definitely there's evidence of that but because she comes from a lower class she will never become a concubine. Whereas I, I, it's important to remember that Gong Li's character, she's actually from a higher class. She just fell into hard times because of her father's death and debt. Yeah, it's it's uh, what like one of the tragedies of the film is that Yanner doesn't realize that the master could get a wife wherever he pleases. He just has to visit like a family or maybe even a brothel or whatever. Um, so he could keep continue exploiting her, however, which way he wants um she doesn't really have much of a future ahead of her but she's so desperate to believe in that future anyway yeah and in both cases in both the case of uh Jan Ur, uh her punishment and the case of um the opera singer the third Mei concubine Shan. yes uh, it's it's interesting that they're both punished without the master so in the yanner case is obvious because the master is absent and they ask the first concubine mm. What what should her punishment be? And she says, "We'll follow tradition, right? Something like that." And the second the second one, it is the well. It's, this is off screen. We're just told about this, but it is the second wife who goes with the servants to the hotel where they were staying and drags her out and and imprisons her before the master. I think the master probably is the one that condemns her to death to death by hanging in that little room in the in the in the roof. But everything before that happens just. That's you get the impression that that's just what the rules are. That that's what happens to someone who was caught doing what they did. Yeah, these women are enforcing their own imprisonment essentially, and 
yeah, that room is kind of like um, Chekhov's hanging room, I guess. You're, you're told that it was used to hang unfaithful wives in the past, and that's like, oh, this is going to be used later on in the film. <laughs> Even though Song Yan dismisses it initially because she's um, she thinks, oh, we're living more enlightened times. It's kind of like, no, these traditions, just as like the the patriarchs of previous generations are looking down on you. This room, which is used to punish women who are unfaithful, uh, is going to uh, is hanging over your head as well. Yeah, and it's it's kind of strange to me that uh, well, two things that in the end, of course, we go in the end just to spoil the ending of this thirty year movie is that um, uh, Gong Li remains a concubine, but is sort of said to go crazy to have gone crazy in the end, right? Uh, just as like a fifth concubine is introduced into the house, and it's kind of. It's kind of interesting how, as we visit the concubines, they just get younger because that's—I mean—that's what this guy does, right? He marries, he marries, and I'm not sure what the they call them mistresses. Mm, yeah, and I'm not sure if like polygamy. I, I wasn't aware before watching this film that polygamy was legal in China, although maybe it isn't technically. Like marriage is just—I don't know what it is. I think uh, after the, after the fall of the Qing Dynasty, um, when China started to try modernizing itself. Um, they outlawed polygamy. Okay. From what I read earlier today. I see. Uh, but yeah, so I mean, it's funny how they just get younger. So the first concubine is the oldest, and then they just get about, each of them have like a 20, 20 year uh, difference between them, right? Yeah. Like um, Song Lian is the same age as the oldest son of the master of the house, Master Chen. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it's, uh, so it's, it's kind of that's what he does. And obviously, some time has passed. Obviously, he's just, the fourth concubine became useless, uh, so he got a fifth concubine. But I, it, it, I did find it strange in the end that she remains a concubine. She doesn't either die or get sent away. I don't know if there's a tradition against that. But she's just kind of like allowed to hang around, sort of being mad. And I guess maybe that's kind of what happened to the first concubine. She seems very cynical about things, very reserved. Is it is it a case like um, she's just... Um resigned herself to the situation she's like okay I'm, I'm married to this guy uh i might as well just see out my days peacefully and why are all these other women causing a fuss yeah it was like there was a, i remember a long time ago i read a i forget who the author was about uh, it was sort of a japanese short story about uh, like a a uh like a cheating uh, like a husband having an affair outside of marriage and it was sort of like expected. So that was like a normal thing to do in uh, sort of a, at least in a certain like a traditional view of Japanese marriage that the, the husband will eventually will eventually have an affair. And the wife was actually like like she wanted to choose the, the woman with that he would have an affair with. And that was the story. That's strange. I read a, a review for a documentary about John Lennon, who um, had a year away from Yoko Ono and um, she sanctioned it. And during that year away, it was with their like secretary. Um, I can't remember the woman's name, but it's like a new documentary has just been released. It's in a variety. Okay, but yeah, I mean that's sort of. I think that's what happens with the first concubine. She's just you know she she knows how things are. Well, yeah, essentially, it's kind of like okay, we we've now resigned ourselves to being goods. This we we belong to this guy. We're we're like animals in a zoo. He will visit us. Gongli uses the term like jacket or or clothes. Yeah, oh, I think at some point she refers to everybody in the compound itself as like um, uh, animals. So yeah, it's kind of like oh, it's like a zoo. He can visit 
uh, whichever cage he wants. So, yeah, they they understand, but they they are essentially like products. They've been traded. Uh, they've been given to him, and he can do with them what he pleases. Yeah, there's. I mean, it's it's a far more depressing than say like the trope of a collaborator. Like I'm I'm thinking of either collaborators during war or maybe like black uh, slavers or blacks. You know slave owners in like like the like uh samuel jackson character in uh django in, and in django but in that case they have something to gain i mean they're still slaves like samuel jackson was still a slave but he had a lot of power sort of like in a subdued way and that's sort of a very common trope but in i think this is like uh, like raise the red lantern is a lot more depressing because they like like someone like concubine one like the first mistress has absolutely nothing to gain by sort of abiding to the system or being hmm. a collaborator you know quote unquote yeah this is how oppressive structures maintain themselves they co-opt different groups to oppress other groups and to keep that um uh, oppression going and uh these women they're all very much aware of it but they've resigned themselves to it because where else are they going to go i guess yeah and it, it's like i like i said it's so i mean it's the the control and again that's why i kind of make the case about so sort of like the political underpinnings of the film because like it's about control how like why you know like if you think about it the it's it's entirely about what things symbolize about sort of like the like the the symbols that sort of like everybody represents like a lantern is a means of lighting of just lighting like a dark street it's not it's not meant to have but it like it has this so such a great power in the film that it's not only symbolizes the house that the the master will spend the night in but it also it's illegal it's forbidden for someone who has not been authorized to actually light the lantern like you know when Gong Li does at the end, or when the servant is caught with it. Yeah. So it's 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 just it's I mean it's so like ab absurd if you think about it sort of in a in a real world sense that it's it's just a lantern. Well, the whole the whole thing is absurd. Like all the traditions in this house are absurd. The house itself is like a prison because like it's stone walls and um, the color scheme, which is all drab grays and browns. And um, it's so quiet in this place, and you're you're essentially in um, like two locations: um, the interior of the compound or the corridors outside the compound. And you never escape this place, so it feels like a prison, and it does become claustrophobic and depressing. Yeah, we never see. For example, we don't follow the second wife when he ca she catches the third wife in the act. That just told with us off screen. The only the only time we're outside of the compound is when Song Lian is first traveling to it, and she she misses the wedding um palanquin or or whatever, and she walks to the house itself. That's like that last moment of freedom where you've got this like uh landscape shot and Song Lian's in it, and then the rest of it is in this house. And like I said earlier, it becomes really claustrophobic being in there. So yeah, I think there's you know there's a. Uh... Um, a lot of a lot of symbolism in the film. A lot of like sort of like you know the place itself is a symbol. The the lanterns are a symbol. They like all the customs that they have about like you mentioned the wife that spent the night with the master gets to pick the food and how mm. they use this to uh, spite each other or something. Yeah, like um, all Song Lian wants to eat is like spinach and tofu, which um, okay, good for keeping in shape, I guess. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's funny how she has a flute from her father, but she doesn't know how to play the flute. At least I don't think she knows how to play the flute. Uh, yeah, we never show her playing the flute. Just uh, mention as a gift. Yeah, I wonder if in the book or maybe in some earlier drafts, there was like intended to be something more between her and uh, the son, like the first son of the master. Yeah, it's never really explored because there's that moment where they, where Song Yan stumbles upon the son. Well, she follows the sound of the flute and she meets the son and their gazes meet and you think there's a sort of um, maybe a, an erotic connection. But the son, the son doesn't follow through on it and it's and you get the sense that he doesn't follow through because he's following the sort of like stratified society and all the customs he doesn't want to displease his father but i i don't i mean that that scene just cuts out right while she's listening to the flute so it's not we don't get like a sense that he's walking away or anything it's just a a cut and then when he like i always got the sense like every time i watch that there's like some scenes missing there because we get when she has essentially the breakdown right yeah. Uh, uh, like after she got caught with a fake pregnancy and whatever. That... Yeah, she gets drunk. That's right. And uh, uh, like the the son walks in there. Like it looks like they have some history. Yeah. Like I wish, I almost wish that there was some, I don't think this is an implication, like at all implied at all, but I wish, almost I wish there was that they sort of almost had an affair or maybe they had an affair, kind of not too different from uh, like the opera singers and the doctor. And the fact that they don't have an affair, um, you can put it down to the son just following the rules of society in the compound. Yeah, but I wish he didn't. So I wish we also had to deal with those consequences or, yes. or lack thereof, because he probably would have gotten he would have gotten not scot free. He would have just been punished. Gong Li would have been punished, but not him. Oh, that would have totally changed the film then. I guess I, I suppose so. I suppose I suppose it's it is asking. I'm asking for a different film, but it, I don't. I don't know. It, it feels like there is something. Like it feels like there's a puzzle piece missing that wasn't there, but then removed or cut out or something that always kind of bothered me. Yeah, I did expect it to go in that direction, but it didn't. Yeah, another thing that I kind of wrote down in my notes is that. I mean, this is a tragic film in many ways. It's a serious drama. There almost there's almost no joke in it at all. But I would have been a perfect premise for a sitcom. The, <laughs> the four concubines of Master Chen. Okay. <laughs> and uh, it's, it's, it's prime material for a sitcom. I think it's like the jokes write themselves. But I think just on a more serious note, I think in a, in a series adaptation of this film, which I think it could be, there's, I think there is the premises rich enough that you could extend this in a, in a way that it doesn't feel fruitless. I think you 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 could have that in there, the sort of like whether a a, a realized or a a desired relationship with the son. Yeah, you could add more to the backstories of the women as well, and uh, you could probably draw more from the surrounding sort of villages. And like you're aware that there's uh that people outside are judging what's going on inside. Um, especially when there's a whole worry about how Yana's um sort of uh fate will be viewed by people. Another thing that, and this one is a, a bit less of a problem, but um, when uh, the first time that uh, we it's sort of like revealed, and this is sort of a twist, I, I, like I have to be honest, that I didn't expect it the first time I watched it, the, the second wife being the, like the villain, whereas the, it kind of does a, a, like a 180, the film does 180, and the, the one that we thought was the bad guy was, or the villain, and it turned out to be a, relatively likable, not very likable, but relatively likable and, and maybe tragic character. 
And the one that we thought was, you know, Gongli's friend turned out to be probably maybe the, the most despicable character of them all. Yeah, face up by the heart of Scorpion. Exactly, that's a, that's, that's a direct line from the film. Uh, yeah. But I thought, you know, when, you know, when Gongli's character finds out in Yanner's room, she finds out the, the lanterns for the first time and she finds out the doll and then she kind of essentially talks to her nicely and says, I won't tell, but you have to tell me who wrote this. And Yanner cried. I, I kind of expected that that would sort of change their relationship, that maybe it would make Yanner warm, maybe more warm towards her. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I had the similar expectation. But that didn't happen. It's just like Yana eventually betrays her by showing the the her bloody pants to to the second wife. It seems like Yana is likes the second wife, which I don't get why. Uh, it must be that um, Yana is younger. She feels like the second wife's already established, so master's looking for fresh meat, essentially, and um, that Yana can fulfill that role, and the second wife, um, maybe she's being kind and using her as a pawn. Yeah. So uh, Yana has just gone along with it. I suppose. I mean, that that, I mean, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it, it is. It was like sort of it was, you know, a... a uh, I I thought that the the but I I think the film obviously maybe it's a pragmatic thing the film doesn't move forward without that who else is going to betray her pregnancy or lack of pregnancy? Well, who else has been like taking her clothes to the laundry and constantly spitting in them? <laughs> well, yeah, I also thought you know okay because again I'm not a woman I I don't know what it is to have a period but I would think that you know, obviously you I mean obviously you're very aware when you have a period because there's all so many. Side effects, cramps, headaches, and all that. I mean, it's it's a it's a complicated thing. Yeah, and you're also trying to pull a major scam. I thought you'd be more careful about where you leave you you leave your the evidence, right? Yeah, I totally thought that scam was just ridiculous. <laughs> exactly, because I mean, her plan was to get pregnant, and obviously, a few days of difference wouldn't matter. Yeah. So so that that I mean, could have totally worked, assuming you know we know. Master Chen is definitely not sterile because he's already a kid. Assuming she wasn't, you know, she didn't have any reproductive problems. I mean, that could have totally worked. You'd think she'd be a little bit more careful about giving, you know, like the evidence to the servant who we've already established uh, that hates her. Unless, again, that would make more sense if maybe she also expected her their relationship to Too warm up a bit. It's yeah. just like we, the audience, expected. I don't know if, again, there's, you know, something that was supposed to... Uh, extrapolate from that or maybe there was scenes that were intended to be there and cut out i don't know but uh, a little bit uh, i think it, it requires a bit of a suspension of disbelief to like justify getting from point a to point b and that's it yeah yeah uh so okay so anything else about the plot of this movie that uh, or about the themes the messages that you think uh we can add to the discussion i felt like it was relatively um easy to get into and so, like, um, I feel like we've discussed it at length. Yes, good. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. It's just sort of when I sat down to watch it, I said, "Oh, but this is going to be a slow movie." But no, it the drama is quite compelling. It's quite compelling because you've got really great set of performances from the wives themselves. They all manage nuance. Uh, great performances from the actresses portraying the wives. They they all manage nuanced performances where they can hide their true intentions they all put on um uh, particular sort of false masks to take part in this sort of uh, game that they play amongst each other and gongli 
uh, has a remarkably um, difficult role in holding the audience's sympathy while being completely unsympathetic herself. And that's because we understand what she's going through, through like um, the story and also the way that uh, each scene is framed. And like, again, it feels like a prison. She's stuck in this madhouse and she's driven to these horrible acts. Yeah. And I feel like there's the, in the beginning, she's very sympathetic and sort of a victim when she's, you know, we kind of get the impression that, that the, the sense that she is, you know, goes through the marriage without really needing to, she drops out of the university. And for the moment, the moment that she enters the palace, you think, okay, this is going to be a sympathetic character. Then there's that first interaction with Jan Er, and she seems, comes out rude right away. Not, not very rude, but kind of rude. And Jan Er is rude to her initially, so maybe that is justified. But mm. after the first night with the master, we see that tear on her cheek. After that, I feel like she kind of becomes more unsympathetic as a character. Very petulant. More jaded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, very petulant, um, sometimes capricious as well. So for all of her university education, she's quite naive and um, about how to play the game. And ultimately, she's self-destructive. She's also 19. I think, I think that's, she looks very mature because I think Gong Li as an actress has that air of maturity and air of authority. But I think a 19-year-old, Yan Er is closer to what a 19-year-old would act like more, more realistically. Yeah, it's just totally naive about and, and impetuous uh, in this in this uh, whole game, and it's kind of like you don't have to know too much about being a concubine to understand, like in those opening moments where she's like, "Fine, I'll get married," that she's giving away your freedom, and um, we're going to watch someone essentially being their their intellect, their their the spirit being crushed. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that the end, she kind of has that real realization and resignation. I don't know if she's truly go we never get an answer if she's truly gone mad or if that's just the excuse uh that people give to not draw attention towards her. Because yeah, maybe she's just kind of saying that they killed the third mistress. Like that's not going mad. They're just revealing the truth. But obviously you wanna get people's away att- attention away from that. It could be a long con, and uh, you know, eventually, so, so many years down the line, she'll usurp all the other concubines. No, she's just gone mad. That's the whole point of the film. Yeah, and I think that's that's the whole point of like like the system being being inescapable. Yeah, yeah, subjected to these horrendous conditions, and they lose their individuality. Boom. Yeah, another. I mean, another point that we we could have talked, but you said this is the only Zhang Yimou Zhang Yimou film that you've seen is whether or not. Zhang Yimou has sold out, and uh, I think so. But uh, but I also I I also haven't seen that many of his more recent film films. Well, like having read the synopsis for uh, Cliff Walkers and so forth, they seem like big patriotic movies. Yeah, the Cliff Walker. They're like two films in the series so far. I see. I see. I think. I mean, obviously, the Flowers of War was, you know, I mean, it was an inter- it was not a bad film by any means, but it was. Like a film that could have been done in Hollywood, like that feels like a very Hollywood-centered film, and um, you know, Hero and House of Flying Daggers were maybe what, in terms of artistically, what he could do, what someone of his talents could do with with a better budget. Hmm. But you know, later it seems like he completely sold out, and it just became you know very mindless. Like like I think the Great Wall is, I think, kind of maybe the perfect representative of his career. Although again. 
haven't seen the Great Wall, haven't seen Cliffhanger, no Cliff, uh, Cliff Walkers, Cliff Walkers. So I don't want to overgeneralize, but it seems to me that he has not kind of lived up to the reputation that he he did that he started with. Although you know maybe he got out his uh, uh, his artistic art house films, and that's 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 all he has left now. Yeah, it's, uh, well, like I said earlier, this is like an art house film and there's a lot of political commentary. And as we've discussed, that political commentary can be applied to, um, sort of China of the 1990s, maybe China of the modern day as well. Like, um, like women are still treated badly and co- uh, like communist authorities, uh, you, uh, you put down it was banned in China. Um, was it like for a year? Oh, I, I all I read was a brief amount of time, uh, so I I don't know exactly for how long. Yeah, so like Chinese authorities probably uh, if like if this film was banned, um, communist authorities probably saw him as maybe a bit of an agitator. And if you look at his more recent films, that agitation is gone now, and it seems like he's more into patriotic flag waving. So I mean. Um- yeah, so one, I'm I'm looking at his filmography, and um, so like you said, Cliff Walker's looks like that. There's another film called Sniper, which uh, kind of looks like that. But he also directed a film called One Second, which mm. won the the Best Director Award at the Asian Film Awards, and it's it's about a man who escapes a prison during the Cultural Revolution. Okay. So maybe that is meant to be critical. Although again, that that synopsis could be anything. It could still be very pro pro uh, pro pro China, and I think China has officially sort of like condemned a lot of actions in the Cultural Revolution. So even if it is like that, it still would not be uh, anti-China. Not that it has to be anti-China, but it's just obviously like there's a connotation there. There's a yeah. context there. Well, during the Cultural Revolution, like uh, the bourgeoisie, like intelligentsia. Um, artist class, they were essentially sort of um, put out to the fields, to the countryside, or locked up. And film schools were shut down. And um, most then schools. That, most schools, yeah. The, and the like denunciations of teachers who didn't follow doctrine and so forth. And then, like, Yang Jimu was like one of the sort of like first generations of um, directors to emerge after that period. Um, would would that be a correct interpretation? I think so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so it's kind of like uh, I feel like uh, Race Red Lantern could be commenting upon that, especially with the character of Mei Shan and her fate. Um, and then you look at like uh, his big budget phase, and uh, he's towing the party line. Yeah, and I think the reason for banning it again, I would, I, I wouldn't make too much of that. I think there was a around this time China would ban anything that was remotely political, whether pro or anti. And we're we're entering into a new phase of that. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Especially with what I mentioned at the beginning, was sort of like the whole surveillance thing. Mm. Uh, it's very interesting. You know, China is becoming sort of like as opposed, not not that they're not the only ones, of course, but. Sort of like a, a one of the countries that they are controlling, sort of like the information that is allowed to to be distributed to students, but it's also tracking to a degree that is possibly surpasses the amount that any other state does. 
Yeah, we just leave it to capitalists in our country. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the I mean, the 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 difference there. The difference is that you can you can theoretically escape that. It's not easy, but it is possible. Mm. And there is, I mean, there are legitimate. I mean, there is one thing. I mean, there are many good things about the free market. There are many bad things about the free market. But the one good thing is that just as as uh, the profit motive motivates people to track us the profit motive can also motivate other people to develop tools to prevent tracking yeah there's always an opportunity for reform a greater opportunity for reform exactly and there are many things that you can spend money on to prevent people from to prevent these companies from tracking you like vpns and all that so so again that there's it's it's they're both bad but there's there's a degree of badness which they differ yeah Okay, so I think I think I think we've definitely like had a nice discussion about raise the the red lantern. I'm still sticking to my communist interpretation, although it is it requires some sort of like uh, moving of chess pieces to make it fit. I'm not going to question that. <laughs> it's a very interesting theory. Do you do you think this? So that the usual question that we ask at the end of these episodes is: Do you think this film deserved the awards that it received? Um, having not seen any of the, uh, like other films that was up against the foreign language films at the Oscars at the time, uh, I could, I, I'll say yes. <laughs> In terms of like the visual design, it's just magnificent. And, um, the themes and the story are very deep and just great performances. So I, I feel like there's so much there that, um, it's worth people tracking it down and watching and getting a history lesson, a sort of allegory of perhaps modern China as well. Absolutely, and I, I would agree with that. So, uh, looking so in the in the Academy Awards, I I don't know that I that I haven't seen the I haven't seen any of the others, and I it's generally not not only it's not only about what have you seen, but it's also about sort of like the the reputation that they have today, thirty years later, and I don't think any of the other films have held up. In terms of recognition, as much as raise the Red Lantern. Well, was it like the Ox with Stellan Skarsgård, uh, Mediterraneo? I had not heard of these. Yeah, yeah, and I don't think the director of that of that one, the Italian film that won, is also that well known. Yeah, uh, and I mean there are Italian directors, obviously, that you know have made quality films, but I don't think the that guy. I forget. I saw his name just a second ago, and I forgot. I don't think he's particularly well known. Again, I don't want to make great generalizations, but also looking at the Venice Film Festival, the the film won the Silver Lion, which is the second best award. The the best award was the Golden Lion, which was won by close to Eden Nikita Mikhailov, and he's a great director. I'm not sure if you've seen any of his films. No, I uh, that name doesn't ring a bell. No, he's he's one of the sort of like a, a Soviet sort of like transitionary directors that go went from like a pre 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 revolution to post revolution and he sort of like made a name of himself in the 90s with russian cinema i think before the rain might be his better known film i forget but he is is a very well known uh uh, uh burned by the sun sorry burned by the sun is the one uh, that, oh i've that, heard of that one is yeah. that um concerning japan and world war 2 or uh, am i misremembering no I, i'm a I don't think so. No, no, I've got another director. So, so that's a so that's sort of like a, a an anti-communist, like an anti-Stalin film. Mm. Um, he also did. He also did. Ironically, which is actually not a bad film at all. 
but it is a uh, a remake of 12 Angry Men in Russian. Hmm. It's actually one of the better remakes of the 12 Angry Men and it was uh that also received some uh some acclaim. Uh, but he's close to Eden. I haven't seen that one in particular, but it's actually like I've heard of it. It's it, it's a nice film. So maybe for the the point is going back to raise the lantern. Maybe Silver Lion is what it. You know, I'm okay with the other film winning the Golden Lion. Silver Lion is good enough. But so I think it did get the recognition that it deserved there. Uh, if it had won the Golden Lion, I think that would have been fine too. Yeah. So other films released in 1992 include Terminator Two. Judgment Day, uh, Boys in the Hood, is it? Uh, let's see. So that was so. Raise the Red, Red Lantern was ninety one, nineteen ninety one. I'm looking at the Academy Awards for nineteen ninety two. Oh, okay. Uh, JFK, Thelma and Louise, The Silence of the Lambs, Barton Fink. That's like that's another great movie. Yeah. So like these are all the films that work. Uh, in competition at the Academy Awards in 1992. And The Fish King, which I mentioned earlier. Yeah, and that one I haven't seen, but I've heard uh, good things. Mm. And Cape Fear, the Scorsese remake. Yeah. Some some Asian films, so Once Upon a Time in China was released in 1991. What's that old? <laughs> wow. Yeah, A Brighter Summer Day, the movie by the Taiwanese movie. I forget the director's name right now. Is it Edward Yang? Edward Yang, yes. Pushing hands. Oh, okay, angry, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so you know, 991 was not that competitive of a year, perhaps, but long story short, I think that Raise the Red Lantern, it deserved, uh, it deserved the recognition that, uh, that it got. You said, in the beginning, you said you didn't love it, but you respect it or something like that. So would you care to elaborate on, on that sentiment? So, yeah, uh, A Scene at the Sea by Takeshi Kitano was also released in uh, 1999. Fantastic film. And Hiroku the Goblin by um, Shinji Tsukumoto. But it's a case of, like, um, where, like, the story itself and the themes are really tough, you know, and I felt the claustrophobia um, from the framing. So it's kind of like, it's a film where I was intellectually engaged, I was emotionally engaged, and, um, like, I, I learned a lot, but it's kind of like not a film that I would want to watch again because it was such a tough experience. I see, I see. That makes sense. I, I sort of had the opposite effect where, well, not, not exactly the opposite, but I, that's why I felt before re-watching it this time. Mm. I thought that this is a movie that I appreciate on a sort of, a, on, a, on an objective level where it's sort of like, you know, as someone who enjoys movies and is a cinephile, I can appreciate sort of like the historical significance and maybe the themes of this film. But I, I didn't think that I would enjoy it on an emotional level or just be entertained by it. But I don't know. Watching it this time, I thought it was very entertaining as a film. You, you describe it as an art film, which I, I would agree to a certain extent. But there's also the connotations of art films being a certain way. Being pretentious, uh, maybe. Being yeah, and, and not necessarily commercial. But I thought this one had commercial potentials as a film, as a film that you know you could maybe show it in movie theaters in the nineties, and it could you know uh, draw significant, uh, a significant box office success. It was you know very had a it was intriguing, had like this whole court intrigue, which is always yeah. fascinating. So I don't know. I was I felt I enjoyed it a lot on on both on both the intellectual, but also the just simply entertaining. Uh, level mm, yeah all right so but i think other than that so we both enjoyed it uh 
would you recommend this film to someone and what would be the circumstances on, in which would you would recommend it like um my, my entry into mainland chinese films has been patchy it's like um black hole thin ice red firecracker green firecracker suzhou river and like these things i've watched on television and um yang jimo is like uh, a, a pivotal figure in um bringing mainland Chinese films to international attention and Race the Red Lantern is, um, as far as I'm aware, the film that helped do that. And so it's kind of like, um, I would recommend it to a person who wanted to get into mainland Chinese films and see like the major figures involved, um, Zhang Yimou, um, Gong Li, so forth. I-, I would agree with that. I think I would recommend it to someone as an entry to Chinese cinema. I don't know that I would recommend it in general. I mean, you know, it's, I mean, of, of course, that also is a very arbitrary thing. You know, what do you recommend? But I think there are a lot of films that I would, especially entry into Asian cinema that I would recommend over this. But if someone was specifically interested in in an entry to Chinese mainland China cinema, I'd say Raise the Lantern, Raise the Red Lantern is pretty high up on that list. Yeah, it has like visual beauty to it. It has deep themes and... um like spiky characters that you get involved with and it holds your attention throughout and it's just really well made film. Okay, so I think that's a good a good way to close our episode. Is there anything else that you'd like to say before we end the episode? Uh, really interesting discussion, so thanks uh, for that and for recommending the film. Glad I got into the film and uh, I'd like to thank the listeners for uh, sticking with the conversation if they've got this far and uh hope they come back for the next episode all right and since you mentioned it the next episode will uh step slightly outside our usual territories and talk about a taste of cherry directed by abbas karastami i hope i pronounced that correctly but uh, the winner of the palm door in 1997 uh co-winner of the palm door i should say with the eel which we have talked about uh, that will be in two weeks. Uh, until then, stay safe, stay well, and uh, we'll hope to see you again. <laughs>